better now? Okay. Three commands, I think, that God gives us that are very difficult to do. Last week we looked at study. Today we're going to look at defend. And next week we'll look at give. But uh, before we do that, I was reminded that church feuds are really pretty prevalent. Sometimes churches can be divided side to side. But when the church pastor is feuding with the church choir director, it becomes very interesting. One week a preacher was in a disagreement with the choir director, and he preached on commitment and how we should dedicate ourselves to the work of the Lord. And the choir director led a song, I Shall Not Be Moved. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on giving and how we should meet the needs of people and consecrate our income to the Lord, and the director led in, Jesus paid it all. The next week, the preacher preached on gossiping and watching your tongue, and the hymn was, I love to tell the story. The preacher got disgusted over this and came to church the next week and thought, explained to the congregation he was thinking about resigning, and the choir director led this hymn, Oh, Why Not Tonight? I really did get the preacher's ire. So the next week he came in and announced that he was leaving, that he believed that Jesus had led him into that congregation, and now Jesus was leading him out. And the hymn was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's a, that's a, a funny story, but I think that feuds are all too frequent. I have used this background for this series, but I've used it before, but I think it really indicates well each of our lives and how we're all on a racetrack that God has set out. Paul mentioned something about training like an athlete in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, and I think that's what we're doing. We're running the race that God has set before us. So I like this background, particularly for this series, and the uh, next slide will describe what I think is the appropriate title as a summary of this, Stand and Speak, Defend the Gospel. And I think all of Second Timothy is really a direction for us to have a defense of the gospel. Uh, Mark Driscoll this morning in uh, his series in Sunday School uh, mentioned First Peter 3.15, which says, always have an answer to give to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. I think 2 Timothy actually expands that and directs us to be apologists. The message summary on the next slide is what I think is a summary of 2 Timothy, and specifically this morning's message, is God commands us to powerfully speak biblical truth in time of spiritual apostasy. God commands us to powerfully speak biblical truth in time of spiritual apostasy, and I think that is very difficult to do. It's hard to talk to people and tell them, you are wrong. No matter how you say it, it still comes across, you're wrong, and people don't like to hear that. Mark Driscoll mentioned this morning the cultural uh, idea of value is tolerance and understanding and spiritual synthesis or putting things together, agreeing with everybody. But I think Timothy, God, through Timothy, message of Timothy tells us that we need to powerfully speak biblical truth. That's why I have entitled this message series, Defend. The uh, next slide will reflect some work I did quite a while ago in summarizing all of 1 Timothy. We're not going to read all of it because it'd take too long. We're going to jump into it and look at specific verses as I go through. But the summary, I think, 
is character, content, contrast, and command, each chapter. God's servant is faithful. Scripture is to be accurately and graciously taught. Contrast is God's servant will suffer for biblical truth, which stands against religious culture. And Mark Driscoll, again, this morning mentioned the fact that our Christian religion stands against all of the American culture, which is in in a sense of religion. And the last one I put on the separate side because it's so long. 2 Timothy 4, I think, has this as its message. And I would like to take a little bit of time to go through that. It is the creator God who sacrificed himself on the cross and is the coming judge and kingdom ruler that who commands us to faithfully use Bible truth to direct our lifestyles when people do what they want. I want to repeat that phrase, or that portion of the sentence. It is the creator God who sacrificed himself on the cross and is the coming judge and kingdom ruler who is commanding us to faithfully use Bible truth to direct lifestyles when people do what they want. In other words, we use the Bible to tell us what's right and wrong today. And this same God promises us to reward us and deliver those who do that, even when no one else supports them. We're going to look later on in the message that Paul stood completely alone, and he repeats a few times in this uh, short book that God delivered him in spite of that. Now, the next slide is the first point, who are God's messengers? Then we'll look at how do we deliver the message and what is the message. But this first point was actually generated by my wife last week when she told me, well, isn't uh, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, rather, directed to Paul, from Paul to Timothy? And so that's a legitimate question. Why am I saying that this letter to, to Timothy is directed to us? Well, I think it's a valid question. I think it has a valid answer, and I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain that. I think that we are directed in the pastoral epistles to respond just as Timothy was and Titus. But first I'd like to look at what Paul's ministry was because he starts the book out, should I say God starts the book out through Paul, describing Paul as an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Again, in uh, the third chapter of 2 Timothy, he will remind Timothy of who he was, what he taught, the persecutions he endured, and say, okay, Timothy, since you've seen God deliver me through all this, now I want you to go and preach the word faithfully, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. But Paul's ministry was unusual in his day, and if we obeyed and did the same thing today, it would be just as unusual in our day. If you turn briefly with me to Acts chapter 13, because we see what Paul did in uh, a couple of verses here, Acts chapter 13, verse 14, it says that from Perga, Paul's team, went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak goes on to cite what they said, and I'd like to jump down to verse 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 13, because he does something that would be considered offensive. He says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. He goes on to tell them about the prophets telling the people they're going to be a bunch of apostates. But he confronts them with their established religious belief that the law of Moses was the way of salvation. He says, Moses couldn't do it. Jesus can They left that Sunday, came back the next Sunday, and look at verse uh, 45. When the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, saw the crowds, they were filled with uh, jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then flop over to verse uh, 50. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul went into the synagogue, got kicked out of town for what he was preaching. Look at the next chapter, verse 14, verse 1 in Acts. At Iconium, the next city, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. (laughs) This was their way they ministered. They went into the established religion of the day and said, Hey guys, you don't have it quite right. You can't be justified through Moses. You've got to be justified through Jesus Christ. Paul did that repeatedly, and he paid a heavy penalty for it. But the reason I'm spending the time with this is because Paul tells us next in Philippians chapter 3 that we're supposed to do what we saw him do. Chapter 3, verse 17, if you would. And this is in Philippians, the third chapter. Prior to this, he's described the value of sacrificing yourself for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Do it my way. Chapter 4, verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The reason I take the time for this excursion is because uh, Paul is the one that has authored this book. God has used him and his life experiences to bring to Timothy now and say, Okay, Timothy, I want you to be an apologist, to defend the gospel, to preach the word in season and out of season, be faithful, rebuke, correct, teach, train in righteousness. And Paul has done that. He has done that at great personal expense. Uh, I have up here on the screen that truth does not have to be candy-coated. Truth does not have to be candy-coated. If you look at these passages that I have cited here, in fact, let's do that. Acts chapter 2. Because uh, Peter in Acts and Stephen later on in the next reference in Acts in verse 7, chapter 7, They do anything but candy-coat the Scripture. It's not some soothsayer trying to sell a used car to somebody by convincing them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is speaking to an assembled group of Jews. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. 
that's straight up in your face. You were wrong. You killed the Son of God. And there's no way that that could be uh, misunderstood. It was extremely clear. In Acts chapter 7, the next reference up here, in verse 51, you see Stephen addressing a group of assembled church leaders and Jewish people. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's not very sweet. He's not considering their heritage, their cultural involvement, their religious traditions. He's telling them, you guys messed up big time. You killed the Son of God. The reason I have that up there is because truth does not have to be candy-coated. It is still truth. That was Paul's ministry. And I see, I've showed you from Scripture how God says that we need to imitate Paul. But I also think in 2 Timothy itself, we are directed to that same ministry that Paul is directing Timothy to. And on the next slide, it reflects our ministry. First off, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Timothy is directed by God through Paul to... uh, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be able to teach others. That's you and me. The reliable people that have been taught the word of God down through the centuries now. But that was a direction to teach others what Paul had taught Timothy. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. We've read this several times before in the past. Verse 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God or people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what scripture is for. So all of us can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The next chapter, just across the page in my Bible, verse 8 says that Now there is in store for me, that is Paul, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. I think that's direct application to you and I, where we will be rewarded that same crown of righteousness for our faithfulness in obeying Scripture, and this is part of Scripture. I don't want to take the time to go to Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians there, where We've looked at those in the past to other sermons where every believer has a spiritual gift. Every believer has been gifted spiritually by God as a function, to function in our body, this assembly of uh, believers here. And I think that as Timothy is encouraged by God through Paul in verse 1, chapter 6, or verse 6, fire up our gift. Fire up our gift because that's how we are going to do the ministry of defending the gospel. The next slide is how do we do this defense of the gospel? Teaching, preaching, correcting, rebuking. First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy verse 6 of chapter 1. Uh, well, let's start up with verse 5. 
I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. How do we do it? Faith-based power. God has given us the giftedness. God has given us the information. That's why we're told last week to study to show yourselves approved unto God. Workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have power in the word. We have power from God. And in verse 6, we see also that there is a distinct human and divine interaction. God has given us the power. God has given us the tools to work with. But he says, fan into flame the gift that you've received. We have a responsibility to do something with what we've been given. God tells us to be the ones that are going to go share the truths of the word of God. All of them. Those that are uh, incorrect need to be corrected. Those that are... Uh, unsaved need to be told the gospel and be uh, given that information that could lead them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has given us what I call demolition power. Turn quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. The uh, scriptures explicitly tell us that God has gifted us with tools to wage this war with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see from verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. We have divine power to demolish arguments, strongholds of error, things that are not correct, that have the potential for leading others astray. And we'll look at that in just a minute when we come back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. But we have that, uh, or those tools necessary to share truth effectively. Now, if you look at Jude chapter 3, that is another uh, passage that directs us to take action, not just uh, be uh, passive about our faith. Jude verse 3 reads, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That's a pretty significant statement from God. He's telling us that although he warned to write about all the warm, fuzzy things we can agree about, we can agree about the deity of Christ, the love of Christ, the sacrifice on the cross, he wanted to write about that, but instead he felt compelled to write to us to urge us to contend for the faith. Now this word urge is only a small, let, a small word in the Bible, but it's the same word that is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where God tells us, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. After he's given us 11 chapters of truth in the first part of Romans, 
12 is the pivot point, and he says, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices based on all this truth. Do something. <laughs> I urge you to do something. At the end of Hebrews, the same word is used. I urge you to respond to this short letter, which is 13 chapters of Hebrews. I, respond, I urge you to respond positively to this. Do what I'm telling you to do. It's an impassioned plea to take action. That's what God is telling us. I urge you to urge you to contend for the gospel. Last night, or yesterday, Jessica went down to the zoo in San Diego, and I urged her when her left to be wise, to be safe, drive safely. You know, it means probably nothing, but it's still my job as a dad to tell her, hey, be careful, use your head. That's the same passion that God is telling us to contend for the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, we have faith-based power, human-divine interaction, and we have demolition power given to us by God. But is that the loving thing to do, to tell somebody they're wrong? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, please. See, correction expresses love. And again, truth does not have to be candy-coated. Look at Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, that same urging, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Look at verse 5. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Contending for the faith, telling people, no, you're wrong. That is incorrect. That's heresy. That is an act of love for that person because we don't want that person to continue in their heresy or their error until it develops into something that will take them to hell. I would suggest that correction is an expression of love. In fact, I think that's what uh, Jesus Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 24. His disciples came to him and said, hey, what's the signs of the ends of the age? What's going to happen? When's this going to occur? Well, how will we know when the end is near? And in Matthew 24, Jesus Christ is explaining that. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ. goes on to describe lots of nasty bad things. Come down to verse 12. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because in the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. When wickedness increases, it's certainly not sensual, sexual love that decreases. That lust abounds. It's in everything you see and, and see every advertisement. I mean, Victoria has no more secrets. You know, there, there's... The whole, the whole idea is that as wickedness abounds, the love of most will grow cold. I suggest that it's the love of telling somebody you're wrong because you're not tolerant. You're a bigot. You're whatever. But you're certainly not a, uh, a tolerant person. How can you say I'm wrong? 
I think that's the love that grows cold because wickedness abounds. The love of First Timothy. The love to say, hey, you know, you're wrong. Jesus Christ says this or this, and this is what the Bible tells us we should do. We have faith-based power, human-divine interaction, demolition power, love, but self-discipline. Remember, we read that in verse, uh, what was it, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Self-discipline is what's necessary to study, like 2 Timothy 2.15 told us to last week. Self-discipline is necessary to deny ourselves and step out of our personality-generated comfort zones. Each of us is wired differently. Some of us have strengths in one area that others don't. But whatever it is, these commands direct us to preach the word, be in season, be uh, quick in season and out of season. We have to deny ourselves. That takes self-discipline to accomplish that. But that brings us to the last point, number three. What do we say? The next screen. <clears throat> now, I, I don't think this is any of yours, but this is the bottom of a Yukon quarter panel. Amazing how many things you can find in bodywork that relate to preaching. If you look at that, there's a couple holes here. I made them with an ice pick, but that looks pretty good until you look at it in the light. And I'm not sure if you'll be able to see this, but there's a couple little bubbles right there. You know what those bubbles are? That's the expression of that rust. The reason I cut this out is because it was rusting and had holes in it. But you couldn't see all that rust from this side. It looked pretty good, particularly if, you did, if I hadn't punched that hole in there. But all of that is what's lurking behind that pretty exterior. And that is a lot like error. Error doesn't always look nasty and ugly. It's not always some grossly offensive act or thought or taught teaching that expresses itself. I would suggest that most usually error looks pretty good on the outside. You know, it's wrapped up in a nice building with good grounds and a... And a uh, sweet-sounding choir that sing it, and Jesus paid it all. The point is that error creeps in, sneaks in. It is insidious. It 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 rots us. <clears throat> excuse me. It rots us from the inside out. And so, what we teach becomes important. And what we are told definitely not to do is not to argue. I don't know if you remember that from last week, but we looked at verse 15 last week. The context, verse 14 and 16, and then verse 23, specifically say, don't argue. Let me read that. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Then verse 15. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, <laughs> like rust behind the shiny paint of the next quarter panel. will spread like gangrene. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because, you know, they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Well, we know definitely what we're not to do when we defend the gospel. 
I don't remember, I don't know if what Trey experienced in seminary was the same as what I did, but we used to sit around at the lunch table and argue about subjunctive and indicative and all the different things about we were studying words and trying to figure out who had the best arguments to support what they were saying. But we're not supposed to do that when it comes to interacting and defending the gospel. Do not argue, but we are to do something very specific. We are to teach truth. <coughs> Continue reading with me where I dropped off there in uh, verse 24 of Second Timothy. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Verse 25. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Oh, but it continues. Look at verse 26. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, truth defeats the devil. Early on in my college career, and I forget just where, when it was, it was at Philadelphia College of the Bible, I had a professor tell me that you can read all the books that you can find about Ur and cults and never come to the end of it. He said that if you read and know the Bible, error becomes obvious. And that was a very wise statement. If you know truth, error is obvious. And here, that's what we are to gently teach so that the people that are opposing us can escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. I made a joke about that, and I say it says simply, be reasonable, see it my way. And, you know, basically that's what God's saying. And that is a way that we need to approach others who differ, is teach them gently and pray that God will grant them deliverance. Because we uh, should be concerned about their soul. And then, as I have up on here, it says that Scripture is designed by God. It's God's design for this book to be used for teaching, preaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and encouraging. Those are offensive actions, particularly if you're dealing with someone that's pretty entrenched in what they believe. Now, if you think about Paul's history, I've got up there, uh, Acts 17.32, truth was rejected by most, accepted by some, and effective in a few. And that passage in Acts there is after he's been preaching on Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, as it says in the NIV, in Athens. And what it says is that when they, that was his audience, heard about the resurrection of the dead, excuse me, resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. The uh, proclamation of truth is not always well received. Some will reject it, some will ponder it, some will accept it and follow you willingly. But the next slide specifies something that is very important to know that teaching now teaching it says not necessarily rebuking or correcting teaching generates suffering and these are verses out of second timothy only that reflect that if you look first at chapter 1 verse 8 
Paul says, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join with Paul in suffering for that gospel. Verse 12. Let's start with 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Chapter 2, verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. After comes right after telling him to, to pass on what he's learned. Verse 9. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Chapter 3, verse 12. And this is the one that kind of hurts. In fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And finally, we're, or not finally, but in uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministries. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. Teaching generates suffering. That's one reason self-discipline is necessary. That's another reason why knowing what you're talking about and studying to show yourself approved is important. Paul stood alone. We won't go there, but in verse 15 it says that everybody deserted him. If you look over at verse 16 in chapter 4, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Paul stood alone. But praise be to God, God delivered him. God delivered him from all of those trials. We saw that verse in chapter 3 about everybody living a godly life will be persecuted. Right before that in verse 12, it says, or verse 11, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them all of the persecutions, all of the trials that he endured, he accredits God to his deliverance. God delivered him from the response to his teaching. But that brings us to the next slide, which is what I call my takeouts. So what? What do you do with all this? Well, I, I hope that the scripture has shown you that God commands us to powerfully speak biblical truth in times of spiritual apostasy. That's today. <laughs> That's today. Think of how much error, how much apostasy is in our society. How many people do you know that are living in sin, believing sinful truth, exclude God from their world? As Mark Driscoll this morning said, sin is excluding God from your consideration. Spiritual apostasy is today. And God commands us to powerfully speak biblical truth. And here in Philippians chapter 1, which is normally considered the book describing joy, look what Paul tells us. God, through Paul, tells us. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, 
contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is what that firm stand, that powerful proclamation of truth will do. This stand, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Our powerful proclamation of truth is a sign to those who oppose us that they're wrong. (laughs) They need to be reasonable and see it our way. The next slide. A little bit later, after Paul has extolled uh, becoming uh, like Christ and giving up anything that might be earthly uh, important, in verse 10 he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We plead for that knowing Christ, that fellowship, that relationship with our Savior. But that comes with the suffering as well. So my exhortation at the conclusion of this message is, go with God and stand for truth. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Lord, that you are a God that loves us and that has shared your life with us and directed us to be faithful in our walk with you. Allow us to glorify you by the lives that we live. Give us courage to stand for truth. Give us the opportunities to uh, share your word with those who need so desperately to hear it. We thank you for your goodness. We ask you to bless us and keep us as we leave here. Give us all the strength of our convictions and the opportunities to share your glory with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.